Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crossover Across Time podcast for a special bonus episode. Today on a Thursday, we're in week 18 of the 2024 NBA season. Uh, first of all, I'm your host, Karsten. Welcome to the show. Uh, whether you've listened previously or you're a brand new listener to the podcast, either way, uh, we really appreciate your support and thank you again for tuning in. Um, uh, yeah, so today, bonus episode, of course, we're normally Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We've been off that schedule the last week or so. Uh, with the all-star break of course we did our all-star special last time around yesterday on wednesday um today we're doing a bonus franchise focus episode before we get back to the normal schedule tomorrow with our friday episode and then from there on for the next several weeks we should i anticipate be on a pretty normal monday wednesday friday schedule um you know, you never know if something unforeseen comes up, but at the moment looks like we'll be good, uh, hopefully till the end of the season. Um, and we'll get to, to franchise focus in broader detail, kind of at the end of the episode. Um, but for the time being, let's waste no more time and let's jump right into our franchise focus this time for the New York Knicks. Franchise focus. Yes, we're talking about the New York Knicks, of course, one of the oldest franchises in the NBA. Um, they've always been in New York. They've always been the Knicks. Of course, they started technically as the Knickerbockers, and they may still technically be the Knickerbockers, but of course, everyone knows them as the Knicks, and they have a, a very rich history. Um, not as many championships as you might expect. Um, of course, they have those two championships from the early 70s. Uh, some of the great teams really in NBA history, uh, the Willis Reed years. Um, they've been uh, a contending team in a lot of different points in their history. Um, recently, they had struggled more often than not um, throughout much of the 2000s and the 2010s. Uh, the team was out of the playoff picture. Um, but of course, in recent years, they've gotten a little bit more onto the playoff side of things. Um, and that kind of gets us started with the current team outlook because the Knicks are more exciting as a, a potential con, you know, competitive team in the Eastern Conference than perhaps they've been in 10 years or so at the very least if not since the uh, the late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, really, this current Knicks roster, they've been building uh, in a very healthy management-wise approach, which sounds a bit odd, but I just mean to say that they've, you know, they have a good balance of, of free agent acquisitions, trades, um, drafted players, and then, you know, they've been able to make some great moves. Of course, the greatest move they've made most recently uh at least what looks great on paper we'll see if it 100 turns out great on the court but the acquisition of bayan bogdanovich and alec burks uh from the pistons they gave up some of the the end of the bench guys uh to get bogdanovich and burks to help out their scoring off the bench um you look at the current roster even with some injuries and even if it's not this year, it feels like, you know, this is the start, the very beginning of potentially another of a couple of years where the Knicks are going to be one of the top four or five teams um, in the Eastern Conference. Um, and of course, we already know Boston 
is the top team at the moment. We expect Milwaukee to, regardless of record this season, we expect Milwaukee to be in that picture long term. We know Philadelphia, as long as they have Joel Embiid, and especially now with Tyrese Maxey, they should be in there. Um, but New York has taken steps to to get better over the last year or two. And it starts with the acquisition two seasons ago of Jalen Brunson, a first-time All-Star this season, well-deserved. You could argue he could have been an All-Star the previous season in 2023. But Brunson, to me, <clears throat> seems to be the leader for the Knicks in terms of the the go-to guy. And that's no offense to Julius Randle whatsoever, an all-star in his own right, fantastic player. And Randle is, of course, the the elder player, the veteran, uh, more experienced of the two, but they both have a good amount of NBA experience. Um, but Brunson, especially in a point guard and, and shooting-dominated league, Brunson, I think, has that potential to be just a little more of a leading player, but the combination of Brunson and Randall, I think is great, you know, guard and, and a big man. Um, Randall is versatile and, and fits the modern game, but also has um, size and strength and can score inside. Um, isn't, you know, afraid of anybody in there. So that combination, I really enjoy Brunson and Randall. Um, and they've been underrated and um, overhated, I would say, uh, Randall especially, because of the whole New York market thing. Um, they get, when they have maybe a slump of a game or a few games, they get the ire of the New York fan base. Um, when you're in a bigger market, sometimes fans can be quicker to overreact and quicker to um, you know, get worked up about, you know, you're not playing as well. Uh, and the same is true of the, of the opposite. You know, Brunson has a great few games and suddenly he's MVP candidate. And I don't know about him as an MVP this season. Um, maybe he's a top 15 name or something to that effect. But, um, you know, the Knicks are great. And again, Brunson and Randall I like as a combination. And then let's go through the rest of the roster they have because Mitchell Robinson is a great piece. Unfortunately, he's out for the remainder of this season. Uh, at least that's the the current outlook. He's a he's not a scorer, certainly. Um, he gets efficient dunks on pick and rolls and those types of things. You know, cleaning up the glass as well. But he grabs ten boards a game, gets some steals and some blocks. Defensively is very potent. You know, I like him alongside a more offensively focused Randall. And then <clears throat> that's their front court. And then you have. Dante DiVincenzo, I think, is very underrated. His opportunities to start this year alongside Brunson, he adds scoring. He's got great size and strength at that guard spot, but he can he can defend as well. Solid two-way, great three-point shooting, uh, great, great tandem. And then you add you top it off with um probably the biggest move they've made outside of the Brunson signing is the trade a few months ago for OG Ananobi. Um, I think that unlocked so much because of his abilities on the defensive end of the floor to make sure this whole lineup works. Because again, Brunson, Randall, DiVincenzo, more offensively inclined, DiVincenzo a little bit better defensively. Um, Mitchell Robinson going to lock up the inside as a defender and a rebounder. So then you get Ananobi who can take the team, the other team's best offensive player on the wing or even as a guard. 
<clears throat> excuse me, you can switch some of those things. And he's not going to be a slouch on the offensive end either. He can hit, you know, the open shot. Um, he's averaging about 15 and a half points a game, shooting 39%. He'll hit spot up shots. He'll get inside for layups and dunks and, and hit free throws at a good percentage. You can grab boards. He defends. He works within an offense. He does so many things. You know, seems like the perfect glue guy for this roster. Um, so I like that so much. And then he gets even better because you have a great six man and uh, the heart and soul of the team, no pun intended, or perhaps a pun intended, with Josh Hart. Um, maybe the best rebounding guard we've seen over the last couple of seasons. He's averaging seven rebounds a game. Uh, along with about eight points, you know, 30% from three, not as great, but you know, he can still hit those shots again, passion on the second unit um, brings that to that group. And then they've with the Ananobi traded, they got a guy in precious Achiwa who shores up their backup, their, their reserves at the the front court spots. Uh, Isaiah Hartenstein has been great as well um, as an off season acquisition. Um, Those two have done tremendous work in making sure the team has done a great job um, without <clears throat> Mitchell Robinson in the lineup. And then you have, uh, again, you've added Bogdanovich and Burks as scorers off the bench. Um, so you're just creating a very potent lineup. I feel like they're very deep. Um, they still have younger guys in Jericho Sims and Miles McBride that have a chance to to develop a little bit with probably more two-way type play or um, they're not quite on two-way contracts, but, you know, getting spot minutes um, will limit them, I, I suppose, but they're still talented and they're, they're good guys to have, you know, so a luxury to have players with that kind of talent, uh, that deep on your bench, um, you know, it, it's just good stuff for the future. I, I really like where the Knicks are at right now. Um, I feel like if you're a Knicks fan, you've got to be excited about it. They, of course, have a proven head coach in Tom Thibodeau. Um, they have, uh, they're currently winning 60% of their games this season. Again, that's the best mark since the 2013 Knicks um, that made the conference semifinals. Um, they made the conference semifinals as a team pr- the previous season in 2023. Um, this team is going to be very interesting and very exciting to watch in the playoffs, I feel, um, especially when you get that, New York crowd, the the Madison Square Garden crowd going um, because of the way this team plays. And then you get Brunson in a playoff situation. We saw, of course, what he did in Dallas two years ago. Um, he has the potential and showed signs of that last season. Um, I really like this team. And they're, they're fairly young, too. I mean, Burks is the oldest on the roster. And then Randall and Bogdanovich are, uh, both have played about nine seasons. Uh, I think this is their 10th season each. Um, and then outside of that, you have guys that have years in the league but are still younger. And so this team is poised well to be competitive for the next several years uh, as one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference. So it's really exciting time. Um, good spot to be in for the Knicks at the moment. Um, and I really hope for their sake and for the, you know, the fun of it as a fan, it would be really fun to see the Knicks be a contending team and, and be vying for the a finals berth in the Eastern conference. So that's where the Knicks are at right now. Uh, you got to like it. And uh, as far as our historic team, we're going to go back to one of the more talked about teams in the franchise's history. Again, through much of the, <laughs> excuse me, two thousands, 
in 2010s. Uh, the team was not really in the playoff picture, but that was following a 90s where they were a staple of the playoffs and a staple of the contending ranks, um, not named the Chicago Bulls in the Eastern Conference. Of course, that's always going to be attached to the Knicks of the 90s and any East team of the 90s, really any team of the 90s that was in a position to try and win a championship or to make it to the finals. Um, those Bulls teams with two sets of three-peats, six total championships, uh, really hindered a lot of other teams' chances to to win because they were just so dominant. Of course, uh, there were a few others, uh, a few other series in the 90s that the Bulls were not a part of. Uh, 1990 NBA Finals was the Detroit Pistons and the Portland Trailblazers. Um, so that did not feature Chicago. Then in between, uh, during Jordan's baseball years in 94, it was the Houston Rockets versus the New York Knicks. Uh, of course, that was the Patrick Ewing basically in his prime, maybe starting to get to the tapered end of the prime and decline just a touch, but he was still very good. Um, Ewing versus Elijah Wan, fantastic matchup, but the Knicks had a great team alongside those guys. Um, and that's not the team we're talking about, of course, but just to highlight it real quick, John Starks, Charles Oakley, a young Anthony Mason, uh, Derek Harper was on that team, as was Doc Rivers, interestingly enough, but he was injured. Um, Charles Smith was an underrated forward. You know, they had a great roster, but they came up just short in the finals to the to the Rockets. The following year, the Rockets faced the Magic when the Knicks flared out against the Pacers in the playoffs. And then when you you talk about in the mid-90s for the Knicks, the Pacers uh, were kind of the bane of their existence. Mid to late 90s, that held true. And then the, the Heat joined the fray. The Heat were probably the Knicks' main rival at that point. It was the Pacers early for a couple of years, and then the Heat. Um, and there was years where the the Heat and the Knicks just battled it out. And we get to 1999, of course, a lockout-shortened year, so that the, all the teams only played 50 games each. Uh, so the Knicks ended up with a, a record of 27 and 23. A bit of a letdown, not quite as bad when you still consider they won 54% of their games. Um, it was a very tightly knit race in the Eastern Conference. I think the first seed was only separated from the eighth seed by a handful of games. Um, but the Knicks end up with the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference in 1999. And it's an interesting mix of, te- of players as well. They had some injury issues, but they, they had, you know, an injection of Latrell Sprewell and and Larry Johnson uh, within the, <clears throat> that season or the season prior, along with Alan Houston, uh, who was still very young. Marcus Camby was brought in. Patrick Ewing was definitely aging and aged at this point, uh, far gone from his, you know, arguably MVP level play uh, in the, the late eighties, early nineties. So they had a mix, interesting mix. They had Jeff Van Gundy, who was a very solid head coach had done a great job uh, in the, the absence of Pat Riley from the Knicks um, of course, going up against Pat Riley in the playoffs, but the, the stage is set. The Knicks are the eighth seed and the first seed is the Miami heat. It's another heat Knicks battle. Um, the first and eighth, Seed separation isn't as severe because, again, it's a lockout shortened year. But um, the Knicks prevail 
in that first round series. I want to say it went to seven games. Um, no, five games, but that was a five game. It was a best of five series. Uh, so uh, they win the first round series three to two um, with thanks to in large part to a, a clutch. Uh, I want to say it was a mid range, kind of a leaning pull up shot by Allen Houston bounces and then falls uh, to put the Knicks ahead. They win the series. Um, and they go on to face the Atlanta Hawks in the semifinals. And this is really where they had the breakthrough that allowed them to break out in the playoffs in particular. Firstly, Allen Houston was great with his play, but also making the adjustment, um, limiting Patrick Ewing's minutes due to, you know, again, his decline in play, his age, um, when he was on the floor, their pace was slowed down. Um, and then bringing in Marcus Camby, younger, more energy, faster. They played more up-tempo, um, kind of played smaller as well. Um, they they started Kurt Thomas for, uh, well, did they? Yeah, 12 of the, of the 20 playoff games. Um Camby actually only started three of the games, but he had the most minutes of any of the bigs outside of Patrick Ewing in the games that he played. Um, excuse me. So they they start bringing in more of a mix of Camby and Kurt Thomas going smaller, going younger. Um, pays dividends in a big way in the semifinals. They sweep the Hawks with you know Steve Smith, Mookie Blaylock. They go to the conference finals versus those Pacers teams. Huge. Clutch moments, of course, the Larry Johnson four-point play is an iconic one. Uh, there's an Allen Houston and one layup inside that's also very recognizable for the Knicks fans. Um, and they they stunned the Pacers a little bit. You know, Pacers probably thought this could be the year, but that was the same thought of a lot of teams uh, in 1999 in the wake of Jordan's retirement. Uh, the league opened up. The, the championship race was kind of anyone's. Uh, certainly of the teams that had been contending before he retired. And so the Knicks make it to the first finals post Jordan and they face the San Antonio Spurs with the, uh, the, the two towering centers, really. I mean, Duncan playing a power forward because of the presence of David Robinson was really a center, but was very versatile. Definitely made the power forward position work. Um, but Tim Duncan and David Robinson, David Robinson pretty much at an all-star level or near all-star level. Duncan emerging as a MVP in the next couple of seasons. Um, that was a lot to handle, especially with, you know, Patrick Ewing injured conference finals onward. Ewing was not part of the rotation in the lineup. So they had Cam, uh, Camby, Thomas, and they had another veteran center by the name of Chris Dudley who started a handful of games, including in the finals. Um, and Dudley was an okay player. Uh, by the way, happy birthday to Chris Dudley. It's his birthday today. Um, but by this point, he was um, 33. He was never very athletic to begin with, and he was a terrible free throw shooter. And that was the conversation. If you go back to those finals games from 99, um Doug Collins especially hones in on the fact that Chris Dudley cannot shoot free throws uh, very well. So that was, you know, a bit of a detracting factor. But yeah, they go in with the 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 younger rotation and they lean to that. 
uh, Johnson at the power forward with Sprewell with Houston, um, Charlie Ward, a solid point guard, of course, a Heisman winner, uh, played college football at Florida State, won the Heisman as a quarterback, and then went on to be a, a very solid, reliable point guard in the NBA. Um, Chris Childs, the backup, they have near identical numbers, except Ward was a little bit better defensively. Um, but it was a, a little bit of an underdog um, <clears throat> mentality that powered them. Of course, once they had won as an eight seed, in that first round, um, that continues to be a powerful motivator. Um, that Garden Knicks fan base was um, always a factor, is still a factor, especially in the 90s. They expected the Knicks to be right there in the chase. And when they got back to the finals, it was just elation. They were so ecstatic about this team. Um, and they didn't quite get it done. They lost the finals in five games, four to one. For the Spurs, um, final game in New York, and the the Spurs get to celebrate the um their first championship in their franchise history. Of course, that started a a future dynasty with Duncan. Um, but this Knicks team is always fun to look back on and celebrate what they're able to do as an eighth seed. Of course, they were brought up just last season during the playoffs with the Miami Heat becoming only the second team to accomplish what the Knicks did as far as an eighth seed making it to the finals. Same result for Miami as far as not winning a championship. Um, and there's some interesting parallels to dive into there. Um, there's a particular YouTuber. I forget the name, but if you you know look up 1999 Knicks, uh, 2023 Heat, I'm sure you'll find that conversation. It was an interesting video, but um, just a great team. I think Jeff Van Gundy, Gets underrated as a coach, especially because he just didn't do it for very long in New York. He did it for a little bit in in Houston as well. Um, but, of course, he then went on to be a little more recognizable as a broadcaster on a lot of those finals crews. This upcoming finals will be the first time in a long time that he won't be part of the broadcast crew. But um, he was a very good coach, um, even better than his brother Stan. And, and Stan gets underrated as well. But but Jeff was fantastic. Um and the roster, it was a really interesting mix. Of course, they had Ewing and they had a couple of vets, but they had young guys. And you wonder why this team couldn't quite, fought, you know, continue to grow and and develop and flower into a perennial contender uh, uh, with a whole new makeup. Um, and that's interesting to to look back on and, and pontificate and wonder why that is the case. Um, if you want to talk another breakdown of that. Uh, Secret Base, of course, has their collapse series. Seth Rosen Rosenthal does a great job with that, and he, of course, as a Knicks fan, uh, dives very deep into this conversation. Um, if you want to know the specifics of why this seemed to be an isolated year, it wasn't quite. In the next year, 2000, they they won 61% of the games, made it to the conference finals, and lost narrowly to those same Pacers. Uh, Pacers got to the finals themselves, and they ran into a juggernaut and future dynasty in the Los Angeles Lakers and Shaq and Kobe. But um, after that, they flared out. They lost in the first round the following year. And then throughout the rest of the 2000s, it was just a struggling uh, franchise. But that year was very special. And I think it's fun to uh, to celebrate that team as we attempt to do with our, our historic team focus 
part of our franchise focus. So, so that's the 99 Knicks. As far as the player that we wanted to talk about real quick, let's go into the uh, the career, the Knicks career of one Richie Guerin. Um, and this is a name that a lot of the fans of, of course, today's NBA, but even, you know, 80s, 90s, um, 2000s, all those fans still might not be very familiar with the name Richie Guerin. Um, if you're a Knicks fan, you've probably heard the name whenever, um, you know, let's say Jalen Brunson or before him, you know, Carmelo Anthony, Amari Stoudemire, um, particular stats were broken. Franchise records were broken. Oh, first player to score this many points or most points, um, you know, breaking the record of one Richie Guerin. Uh, Willie Knowles, I think, gets in that conversation, too, sometimes. But um, a lot of people might not be familiar with his name. Um, and again, admittedly, earlier days of the NBA, but a fantastic career. A 6'4", uh, 195 shooting guard out of uh, the Bronx in New York. Uh, New York, born and raised, uh, went to high school in the Bronx, and then went to college at Iona, which is in New York, a little bit outside of um, you know, Bronx and Manhattan and all of that, but still part of that picture very much. Um, was fortunate to uh, be able to be drafted by the New York Knicks, his hometown team, in the second round of the 1954 NBA draft. Uh, debuted in 1956, though. Uh, completed two years of uh, service in the Marine Corps, uh, which was a requirement much more at that time. Um, so credit to him for being able to, uh, serve his, his country. Um, it was something you had to do, but he, uh, in particular was, it was something he wanted to do as well. So credit to him for that, uh, gets drafted by the Knicks comes into the NBA, um, was a little unsure about, you know, his chances. Again, he was a second round pick, um, in college, he had played a lot of, you know, forward and even center sometimes um, mixed in with some guard play as well. Um, at that time, 6'4", sizable, it was a little more of an in-betweener, you know, could be a forward, um, especially at the college ranks. But um, he was also aware enough and had a, a great college coach to to make sure he was working on an all-around game and they were focused a lot on his outside game in terms of, of shooting, especially to make sure that he could play guard because – looked like, you know, if he was to make it in the NBA, that'd probably be the be the more likely fit, especially with that height. And as the, the game was evolving um, and getting taller, that would be kind of a, ne a necessity. So it, it's interesting coming into the NBA wasn't really, um, you know, lifelong at his position or that play style shows a little bit in his first couple of years, um, especially his rookie year, um, average about 10 points a game, uh, four and a half boards, two and a half assists. Um, didn't shoot great percentages, about 36%. Um, of course, for that era, that wasn't as bad. Um, still not the greatest. Following year in 58, he was named an all-star. Uh, 16 and a half points, eight boards, five assists. Um, shoot, shot worse percentages from the floor, shot better from the free throw line. But he was an all-star, and so he was emerging after that season. 69 through or 59 through 63 um those four five seasons he was much improved you're talking about a guy that averaged 22.7 points per game six and a half boards and six assists so he had balanced out the game he shot 42 percent 
from the floor in that time and 80% from the free throw line. So he had great shooting touch at that point, along with maintaining great rebounding ability as that, that guard with big man experience, if you will, became a great playmaker again, six assists along with the scoring. And in 1962 in particular, that was just a year for statistical explosions in the NBA. Um, of course, that was the year that Wilt averaged 50 and uh, Oscar Robertson averaged a triple double, but Richie Guerin, Averaged 29 and a half points per game, nearly 30 points a game, along with six and a half boards, seven assists, uh, 44% from the floor. Again, very good percentages for that era. For the early 60s, 44% is basically like 50% from the floor. Um, he was incredible as a Nick. Um, again, records he had 50 point games, multiple. His highest was 57. Uh, he grabbed 19 rebounds in a game once. He had 21 assists in a game, 16 triple doubles. Um, phenomenal player. In the playoffs, though, that was a different story because he just kind of had happened to have the the worst timing in that sense. Not really any factor of his own. He came in to the NBA. He joined the Knicks in the 1956 season, which was their first season in their franchise's history that they did not participate in some sort of playoff game or series. Um, they made the playoffs in 59. Outside of that, he never, that was the one time he made the playoffs this whole tenure with the Knicks. Um, he left the Knicks in 64. And then in 66, they were able to start building the future championship teams with, with Willis Reed and Walt Bell. Well, Walt Bellamy at that time, was there as a star player, but Willis Reed would supplant him. They brought in Red Holzman uh, and Walt Frazier and all of those great players. So he was right in the middle of, you know, two great Knicks arrows. And he just happened to be one of the great players um, in spite of that. Um, in that 62 season, he was seventh in MVP voting, which again is crazy. You're talking about, you know, Russell Chamberlain, Robertson, Elgin Baylor, in that mix, averaging 38 points and 18 boards that year. Jerry West, Bob Pettit, averaging 31 points, 18 rebounds. And then Richie Guerin right there, ahead of Bob Cousy, um, of all players. Richie Guerin was in the, the mix of those types of players for the MVP in a historic, legendary, mythical even, 1962 season. So incredible career as a Nick. But yeah, he, he ended his career as a Nick in the 64 season, two games in, he was traded to the St. Louis Hawks. And that started a whole second life. He was a productive player with the Hawks, not quite the all-star level player, but he was a good complimentary player to um, the likes of Bob Pettit, of course, but also Cliff Hagen. Um, after that time, he, um, well, during that time, rather, he, uh, was called on by the owner of the Hawks to become a player coach, which was an increasing rarity in those days. Of course, Bill Russell did it as well around the same time, but he became a player coach for the Hawks. It turned out well. The Hawks of the late 60s were stout teams in the, uh, I, I think they were in the Eastern Conference at that point. A lot of their history there in the West. Um, no, yeah, they were still in the West at this point. Um, so they were a stout, they were stout teams in the Western conference. And even after he retired as a player, he still coached the Hawks, um, coached a young rookie Pete Maravich 
and that started a whole other basketball life. But um, just phenomenal player. And again, it goes to show the the nuance of player versus you know player accomplishments versus what the realistic expectation was for a team. Um, you can't fault Richie Guerin really for you know he was an All Star and an All NBA, but for not having much of any playoff appearances, let alone playoff success. When you look at some of these teams, like let's take the 63 team, for example, finished 21 and 59. Um, outside of Garen, they had, uh, was this jumping Johnny Green? I think it might be. Um, yeah, he, he was a solid pro, um, was the next best player on the Knicks at this point outside of Garen. Um, so they had a couple of those guys. And then Willie Knowles was aging a little bit. Um, they had a, an aging Tom Gola at that point. Um, and then it's a lot of names that people are not going to know. Gene Shue, Bevo Nordman, Paul Hogue, Dave Budd, Gene Conley. Um, and again, this is the early sixties. You compare that to what the, the Celtics had in the East as well as, you know, <laughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, like Syracuse, I think was still a potent team at that time. Um, I want to say they would have had Dolph Shays potentially the tail end of his career. Um, they were 48 and 32. Yeah, they had Shays there, but of course, they also had Hal Greer coming into his own, Red Kerr. Um, so, so they were still a stout team. Chet Walker, um, a very young Chet Walker. So, you know, it, it, it was a, a tough mix, and especially with only eight teams, eight and nine teams in the NBA at that time, um, Celtics and Nationals, uh, and then Royals with Oscar Robertson, you know, Garen was in that mix, but he was, you know, below Robertson and, and Bill Russell and uh, a lot of those guys. So it was not quite in the cards. I mean, the Knicks finished 37 games behind the Celtics. Those Celtics teams were, were pretty unfair as far as the, the talent they employed. Of course, Bill Russell, Bob Cousy, they had a very, they had a Ricky Havlicek that year. They had Heinsohn, Sam Jones, Casey Jones, Frank Ramsey, Tom Sanders. I mean, they had, they had names, but, um, Anyways, a bit of a tangent. What I what the greater point I was trying to make is Garen's teams weren't gonna be able to compete in an Eastern Conference with some real juggernauts. You know, he had talented teammates at times, but he was a great player. And I don't think the fact that he falls right in the middle, you know, the Knicks certainly were not bad because of Richie Garen. And I think players like him that fall in these weird eras of a team's history need to get a lot more respect and credit for what he, you know, they were able to do. And of course he's a hall of famer now, well-deserved still is one of the Knicks leaders in uh, numerous statistical categories um, or in is in the, the mix of leaders in, in stat categories. Um, I mean, minutes played, he's eighth. He's uh, ninth in field goals made. He's sixth in field goal attempts. Um, 
how about free throws? Yeah, third and free throws and free throw attempts. Um, he's fifth in assists. Um, what is that? He could be a little bit higher in rebounds. Um, total points, he's sixth in Knicks franchise history ahead of names like Carmelo Anthony, Bill Bradley, Earl Monroe, and Dick Barnett. You know, he's right up there, uh, just barely behind Carl Brown. Um, phenomenal player in the Knicks history and, uh, you know, one of the early greats, again, in the, the late 50s, early 60s, as the league was starting to come into its own and get those those stars like Russell and Chamberlain. Garen was one of those guys as well in the big market, uh, New York with the Knicks and a hometown New York guy. So that was a fun storyline as well. So uh, with that, I think I'll finish up my rambling and finish up our franchise focus. Thank you again for tuning in. Um, for our franchise focus for, you know, one of the more iconic franchises in really all of pro sports. Um, as far as franchise focus goes for the future, um, we of course wanted to uh, get a bonus episode in to, to get caught up. As we've mentioned, there are 30 franchises in the NBA and we have a 25 week uh, NBA season. So we needed to get some bonus episodes in there somewhere. We've kept, um, you know, the Friday episodes as intact as we possibly can, uh, could. So we've been able to to not lose ground on a lot of Fridays. We'll have a franchise focus on tomorrow's episode, but I think we're still going to need one or two more bonus episodes. So anticipate those um, as we go through the next few weeks, uh, closing out the regular season, focusing on the, uh, you know, playoff seating race, teams positioning themselves best for the playoffs, LeBron, of course, chasing 40,000 total career points is going to be a storyline. Um, and uh, the award races as well. All those things are going on. We'll do our normal schedule. We'll also have, again, a couple of these bonus episodes to make sure that we cover all of our franchise focus uh, segments in good time and, and have a good spread. You know, last season, we had a lot of weeks early in the year where we missed episodes. We weren't very consistent with our schedule. A lot of that due to the fact that we're just new to the, the whole podcast thing and we're not super knowledgeable about everything to do now, but we at least have a consistent schedule for the most part. And um, at the end of last season, I think we did something like 10 franchise focus segments over the last two or three weeks. Um, and we don't quite want to do that. We want to spread them out, have one a week, for the most part, maybe one week where we don't do any, and then a couple where we do two in the week and and keep it pretty balanced that way, still cover all of the teams. Uh, so that's kind of the outlook. But again, we'll be back tomorrow, of course, with our normal Friday episode that includes a franchise focus, this time for the Oklahoma City Thunder. We'll have a lot to talk about there in terms of um, pleasing or not pleasing certain fan bases. But we'll, of course, also do our our game summaries from tonight. Tonight, the uh, uh, first post-All-Star game uh, games commence. We'll give you the latest news, go through all the crazy stuff that's been going on. We'll we'll forecast the weekend for you, get you all set to get back into uh, the NBA schedule. So it should be an interesting show. We'll go ahead and wrap up our bonus episode here with uh, another Knicks-related thing uh, with the This Day in History fact. We're going back to February 22nd of 2011. Um, on this date, 
After much speculation, Carmelo Anthony, along with Chauncey Billups, Anthony Carter, Ronaldo Balkman, and Sheldon Williams, um, Carmelo Anthony got traded to the New York Knicks in exchange for Raymond Felton, Danilo Gallinari, Wilson Chandler, Timofey Mozgov, $3 million in cash, and a 2014 first-round draft pick. That night, the Knicks also moved three players in a trade with the Minnesota Timberwolves. This trade sent Corey Brewer to, the, to New York for Eddie Curry, Anthony Randolph, and $3 million in cash. So a lot of moves made on the Knicks front this day in history. Uh, again, Carmelo Anthony, the headliner. Chauncey Billups as well, um, as, as a point guard at that time, was starting to, to wane in his career. But they got Carmelo. He became the, the Knicks star player for... Uh, you know, six seasons or so. And uh, yeah, a great Knicks related note to end on for today. So again, thank you everyone for listening. We'll of course be back with you tomorrow for our normal Friday episode. We'll see you then. <laughs>